Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 47, Heracles, from Zero to Hero. Out of all of the Greek heroes, it was a grandson of Perseus, named Heracles, who receives the most attention, both from the ancients and modern scholars. Because of this, he constitutes what is considered to be the most representative image of a Greek hero who constantly struggles for the benefit of mankind. He's believed to have developed as a local Doric hero early on, and much of his core story is familiar to Homer. But throughout the centuries, his corpus of works would place him beyond the frame of a local hero, and he would become a Pan-Hellenic hero, meaning that his deeds benefited all of Greece, rather than just one particular region or city. This was because all Greeks were eager to lay claim to him as their benefactor, and indeed his exploits take place over an enormous geographical area. Also, he would eventually become a pan-European hero, and was adopted in many of the early Phoenician, Lydian, Etruscan, and Roman myths. The spread of Heracles attests to his overwhelming popularity. In Rome, Heracles was honored as Hercules. They adopted the Greek version of his life and works essentially unchanged, but added anecdotal details of their own in order to link the hero with the geography of the central Mediterranean, and his cult was brought to Rome too. Herodotus also connected Heracles to the Phoenician god Melkart, and he was worshipped in a big way by both Greeks and Phoenicians on the island of Sicily. Furthermore, as time passed on, the myths surrounding Heracles transformed him into an avenger for any injustice, always struggling for the benefit of society and evolving into a cultural agent, aiming at the salvation of humanity. As a result, the chronology of his life is jumbled and the number of deeds attributed to him are endless. He is best known for his twelve labors, but before, during, and after those labors, he had many sub-adventures some of which are important for understanding his character. Typically in Greek art, he is shown holding his weapon of choice, the club. Because of this, he is not always sophisticated in appearance and weaponry, as the club is very primitive and animalistic. He always wears at least one piece of clothing from his first labor, the lion skin, which was impervious to weapons, and it was made into a cloak. Quite often, the lion's head covers his own head like a hat in images. This too ties Heracles to animals in the lowly earth. His labors represent some force of nature that he had to overcome. In this way, he was a champion of the Olympian order against numerous Chthonic monsters. Various kings, emperors, and generals throughout history attempted to attach Heracles' iconography to themselves, thus claiming his power. For example, a coin of Alexander the Great shows him dressed as Heracles on the obverse, with a picture of Zeus seated on his throne and holding an eagle on the reverse. The Lydian and Spartan kings, as well as Alexander the Great and the Macedonian ruling dynasty, even believed that they were descended from Heracles. In 1936, Lord Raglan published the book The Hero, A Study in Tradition, Myth, and Drama. In it, he develops a theory that all heroes' lives, regardless of culture, tended to fit a certain pattern, and he describes the 22 components typical of a hero's life. The life of Heracles is a perfect example to discuss eight of these. First, all heroes have a miraculous circumstance surrounding their conception and birth. Heracles was the son of Alcmene, who married Amphitryon. They lived in Tyrants, 
situated in the Argolid, near Mycenae and Argos. Before he could marry Alcmene, though, her father, Electrion, the king of Mycenae and a son of Perseus, had gone out with his nine sons to battle the Tatphians. His sons were all killed in this battle, though, and when the king returned, Amphitryon accidentally killed him. And so Alcmene's youngest brother, Sphenelus, took over and drove Amphitryon out of Mycenae, and he took Alcmene with him. The two went north to Thebes. At that time, it was being ruled by Creon, as Oedipus had just been removed from the throne. Amphitryon wanted to marry Alcmene, but she refused, unless he takes revenge for the death of her brothers by destroying the Tapphians. So he leads an army of Thebans, recruited and backed by Creon, out to take on the Tapphians. While he was gone, a still virgin Alcmene was visited by Zeus, who had taken a fancy to her, but she was virtuous and refused his advances. Zeus, though, saw that Amphitryon had just defeated the Tapphians, so he transformed himself into the mortal Amphitryon and appeared before their home. Alcmene joyfully welcomed him in and had sex with Zeus, thinking it was her husband. The supreme god, in all of his power, lengthened the night so that the deed lasted three times longer than usual. After he finished, he went out the door. A little while later, the real Amphitryon came back and he too wanted to have sex with his wife. Alcmene was confused, but they do it anyway. Out of these two unions, Alcmene became pregnant with two sons by two different fathers, Heracles from Zeus and Iphicles from Amphitryon. She was a virgin, and a god impregnated her, while her mortal husband did the same. Heracles, though, was not his original name. That was Alcides, named after his grandfather, Alcaeus. But Heracles was later given to him out of irony as a euphemism because Hera hated him so much. Heracles literally means the Cleos, or glory, of Hera. Similarly, Iphicles means of equal glory, although he really wasn't. Hera was supremely jealous of the child, as she was with any children that Zeus had with another female. In fact, she was jealous even before the baby was born. She had called upon her daughter, Eletheia, the goddess of childbirth, to delay Heracles' birth because there was a prophecy that whosoever was born next in the line of Perseus, which Alcmene was from, would rule over the city of Argos, and Hera did not want Zeus's love child to rule over her beloved city. As a result, Alcmene carried Heracles for ten months so that Heracles' cousin, Eurystheus, who was the son of Sphenelus, the current king of Mycenae, could be born before him and prematurely. He would become the ruler of Argos and would later be put in charge of assigning Heracles' twelve labors. Heroes are always shown a sign of divine favor. Eventually, the gods on Mount Olympus stepped in and tried to get Hera to like the baby Heracles. Fearing Hera's revenge, Alcmene had placed the infant Heracles exposed out into the woods at just a few months old. When Athena and Hera came across the abandoned baby one night while taking a walk through the mountains, Hera was struck by his handsome features and decided to take him in to nurse him herself, since she was the ultimate mother. Nursing on the breast milk of Hera would ensure that the child attained immortality, and as such, it was a divine favor from the gods which they had arranged. But as Heracles nursed, his enormous strength, even as a baby, and his gluttonous nature caused him to clamp down too hard on the nipple of Hera. The goddess screamed and pulled him away, with the result that the milk spurted across the night sky and formed the Milky Way. 
Athena then returned the child to Alcmene and told her that she must rear him from then on. Heroes encounter life-threatening danger in infancy. Hera was not satisfied with the fact that Heracles would not become the king of Mycenae, and so she tried to eliminate him. So she sends two snakes to kill both him and Iphicles in their cribs one night, because she couldn't tell which of them was Zeus's son. Iphicles, a mere mortal, began to cry when he saw the snakes. But Heracles grabbed up both the snakes and strangled them with his bare hands. In the process, he made a lot of noise. Alcmene and Amphitryon rushed into the room and were amazed that the infant Heracles was playing with the dead snakes as if they were toys. Amphitryon sent for the seer, Tiresias, who prophesied an unusual future for the boy, saying that he would vanquish numerous monsters. Heroes often go through a time of withdrawal before they start their work. For Heracles, he had an education, like many of the Greek heroes, by a creature out in nature. He learnt music by Linus, a son of one of the muses in Apollo, who invented rhythm and melody, and astronomy from Chiron, who was the only nice centaur in myth, and he also taught Jason. Although he excelled in the more physically demanding arts, such as wrestling and archery, Heracles failed miserably when it came to music. He was clumsy, and Linus yelled at him often. One day, he became frustrated with Linus, and so he grasped his lyre and hit him over the head with it killing him. He was not, however, accused of murder because he had not been the one to start the fight. He argued that he had killed Linus in self-defense, since music was going to be the death of him. This violent behavior worried Amphitryon, so he sent him to be a shepherd over his cattle near Mount Kitharon, situated between Thebes and Thespia. Prodicus, a 5th century BC philosopher, told about the allegorical parable known as the Choice of Heracles. Xenophon later retold this story. When Heracles was just a boy, but transitioning into manhood, so while he was a shepherd at Mount Kitharon, he went away to ponder his future and happened to symbolically sit at a crossroads. Two women came towards him, one from each path. The first that spoke to him was plump and soft and enhanced with makeup and fancy clothes. She promised that if he went down her path, his life would be full of pleasures and that there would be no hardships. He would reap the fruits of other people's toil. Her name was Vice. The other woman, named Virtue, was much more modestly dressed and was obviously pure. She gave Heracles advice, saying that nothing that turns out good and fair ever comes without hard work. Vice said that life was too hard but virtue said that the easy path will lead to frustration and no pleasure at all. The sweetest sight, after all, is the sight of something you have made yourself. Heracles thus chose the life of hard work and ultimately gets the favor of the gods for it. People who follow vice die forgotten. This story was part of a pattern of infusing ethics into Heracles in the 5th century BC. Heroes also accomplish minor tasks while they are working on their bigger ones, things which they weren't known for, warning the people that this person was someone that was shaping up to become something unordinary. While being a shepherd on Mount Kitharon, an 18-year-old Heracles continued to grow tall and strong and began to show signs of exceptional athleticism. For example, with his bare hands, he killed a ferocious, seemingly invincible lion, known as the Kithrone Lion, that was devastating the flocks of Amphitryon and Thespius, the king of Thespia. Thespius was so impressed by this that he asked the hero to come visit him. 
While he was there, the king held a banquet in which he got Heracles drunk and then sent him off to bed. He then sent in his 50 daughters, one at a time, because he wanted Heracles to impregnate them all so that he could have strong men like him in his city to defend it against the minions of Orchomenos, who were currently lording over Thespia. Heracles, in fact, did get each daughter pregnant. Many of the kings of ancient Greece later would trace their lines to one of these children, notably the kings of Sparta and Macedon. When the envoys came from Ergonus, the king of the Minions, to collect tribute, Heracles cut off their ears and noses, tied them around their necks, and sent them back. He then broke into the temples, took all of the weapons dedicated to the gods, and gave them to the people of Thespia. A battle ensued, from which the Thespians and Heracles were victorious, and the city of Orchomenos now found itself under the control of Thebes. There is also a major task, the reason for which the hero came. After his time as a shepherd, as a reward for his help against the minions, Heracles got married to Megara, the daughter of Creon, the king of Thebes, and by her he had several children, all of whom he loved very much. Hera, though, was not content to let Heracles live a normal life. And so one day, she sent him a fit of madness, in which he killed his wife and children, either by throwing them into a fire or by shooting them with arrows. For this reason, Heracles was assigned to ten labors in order to atone for the killing of his family. When he came to his senses and realized the crime that he had just committed, Heracles fled to Apollo's sanctuary at Delphi in order to learn how to make amends for his homicidal crime. Apollo thus sent him to his cousin Eurystheus at Mycenae. He hated him and wanted to get rid of him, so he assigned to Heracles the ten labors, and he eventually assigns two more when Heracles cheated on two of the original. He had twelve years to accomplish these penalties, and these were all superhuman tasks, things that the average human couldn't accomplish. The first of the labors of Heracles, commanded by Eurystheus, was to destroy the lion of Nemea. This invulnerable beast roamed the valley of Nemea and slew many animals and people. And so, Heracles set off, armed with the following weapons. A club that he had made for himself, a bow, which was a gift by Apollo, a golden armor, which was a piece of work by Hephaestus, a sword, which was a present by Hermes, and Poseidon's fast horses. When he arrived at Nemea and spotted the lion from a distance, he shot his arrows at the beast, but without any success, as his arrows could not penetrate its skin. From a closer distance, he tried to pierce the lion with his sword or smash his club into it so as to destroy it, but this was also to no avail. Eventually, Heracles fought the lion with his bare hands. After some time, he managed to wrap his hands around its neck and strangle the creature to death. Then, he sacrificed a ram in honor of Zeus. Tradition has it that, in memory of his victory, Heracles established the performance of athletic games at Nemea. Carrying the lion on his shoulders, he returned back to Mycenae, and upon seeing him, Eurystheus was filled with fright and awe. He realized that Heracles possessed imperishable power and that he was in great danger. So he ordered him not to ever again enter Mycenae and to demonstrate the trophies of his feats from outside the walls of the city. Heracles kept the lion's pelt and would use it henceforth as a defensive weapon, wearing its head as a helmet and making the pelt into armor. The slain of the Nemean lion has come to be representative of the characteristics of a brave and strong man.
The second labor that Eurystheus assigned to Heracles was remarkably more difficult than the first one. This time he had to exterminate the Larnian Hydra, a serpent-like monster with nine heads. It lived by Argos, near Lake Lerna. Its nine heads shot out fire, while its nostrils gave off poisonous fumes. Every time it emerged from its cave, it burnt everything in its path. Heracles journeyed to Lake Lerna, along with his nephew, Iolius, Iphicles' son. When they reached Lake Lerna, they found the monster hiding in its lair. So Athena gave Heracles the idea of shooting flaming arrows into the cave in order to force it to come out. The Hydra then attacked Heracles, wrapping its nine necks around one of his legs, while trying to kill him with its deadly venomous breath. He started to cut off its heads, but before long he realized that this was ineffective, because when one of its heads was severed, two more would grow back in its place. To make things even more difficult, Hera sent a giant crab, which grabbed Heracles' other leg with its pincers. But Heracles managed to get rid of the giant crab easily, smashing it with the very foot that had been bitten. Later on, Hera set a constellation in the sky of the giant crab, to be known later in Latin as Cancer. Apart from power, the struggle to slay the Hydra demanded also wisdom. Heracles sent Iolaus to set a clump of trees on fire and make burning firebrands. This way, after cutting off each head, Iolaus cauterized the open wound with the flaming torch, preventing heads from growing again. When Heracles cut off its immortal center head, he buried it deep into the ground and placed a heavy rock on top to prevent it from surfacing and uniting with its body. Heracles then skinned the monster and dipped his arrows in its poisonous blood. Henceforth, his arrows would be very deadly. The hero returned to Eurystheus and announced the extermination of the monster, but when the king found out about Iolaus's help, he declared that this feat would not count, as he did not complete it on his own. A main element of this myth is that in the ancient world, it was quite often believed that serpents of some kind guarded lakes, and that lakes were believed to be entrances to the underworld. So the Hydra's extermination by Heracles is connected with his victory over death, and belongs to the hero's struggle to gain immortality. Also, the Larnian Hydra is representative of a swamp, because with a swamp, when you drain one part, it just comes right back. For his third labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring back alive the Arimanthian boar. It dwelled on Mount Arimanthus in Arcadia and ravaged the nearby towns. Due to the fact that the animal was really strong and there was the danger of it gouging him with its sharp tusks, Heracles preferred to exhaust it so much that the boar became harmless. He chased it around and around the snowy slopes of Arimanthus. When the boar became exhausted by the chase and could not run anymore, Heracles approached it carefully from behind, and after grabbing a hold of it and tying up its legs, he carried it back to Mycenae. Eurystheus was so frightened of its sight that he jumped in a big pithos, or jar, and ducked down inside of it. This picture is often represented on vase paintings. Then, Heracles killed the boar and wore its hide, along with a lion's pelt. For his fourth labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring him the Carnean hind, alive and unharmed. It dwelled on Mount Carinaea, at the border between Achaea and the Argolid, and was considered sacred to Artemis. 
The hind had golden antlers and hooves of bronze, which made it very fast. For a whole year, Heracles hunted the hind over all the mountains and plains in the Peloponnese. In the end, the animal became weary, and so Heracles was able to slightly injure it at one point with his arrow, allowing him to catch it at last. He tied it up and carried it back to Mycenae. For his fifth labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to kill the Stymphalian birds. Along the densely vegetated banks of Lake Stymphalus in northern Arcadia, there had migrated a flock of birds that were both wild and cruel. They were vicious man-eaters, bearing iron wings which could shoot their feathers like arrows. They ravaged the fields and the gardens and caused tremendous damage to both animals and people. There were so many of them that when flying, they hid the sunlight. Arriving at the banks of the lake, Heracles armed his bow, but he found that it was difficult to spot the birds nesting in the dense vegetation. So Athena gave him a pair of bronze crotala, or castanets, made by Hephaestus, which made a loud noise when clashed. With this weapon, Heracles approached the bank of the lake and began clashing them as loudly as he could. The birds were scared out of the trees, and so Heracles had the chance to shoot at them with his arrows. As they took flight, he killed as many as he could. The rest escaped to an island in the Black Sea, where later, the Argonauts would encounter them. For his sixth labor, in order to humiliate Heracles, Eurystheus ordered him to clean up the dung from the stables of Aegeus. He had to do this in a single day, on his own and with his two bare hands. Aegeus, a son of Helios, had countless herds of cattle and sheep that spread all over his kingdom in the rich and fertile land of Helia. Eventually, there came a time when the population was confronted with an enormous amount of dung and the unbearable stench that emitted, which made breathing impossible. There seemed to be no solution, since the king didn't have enough servants in order to clean it up. So in steps Heracles. When he arrived at Elis, he did not carry the dung away with his own hands, though. Instead, he dug up a deep ditch through the king's stables and rerouted the river Alpheus that was flowing nearby. In a few hours, the filth was washed away and the stables were cleaned. When Eurystheus learned the method that he used to complete the task, he refused to count the success of this labor against the required ten. For his seventh labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring back the Cretan bull alive. After Pasiphae's lustful union with the bull of Poseidon, which created the Minotaur, the bull was let free, but this fierce bull, which emitted fire from its mouth, ravaged the crops and orchards around Knossos. So Heracles journeyed to Knossos and asked King Minos for permission to capture the bull. Minos agreed, and so Heracles, armed with his club and some rope, started to chase after the bull. Eventually, he managed to catch it by the horns and tied up its legs using the rope. He then carried it back to Minos and afterwards took it to Mycenae. Eurystheus saw the bull, admired its beauty, and wanted to dedicate it to Hera. The goddess, though, refused his gift, and so Eurystheus let the bull go free. While wandering from the Argolid to the plain of Marathon, it caused tremendous damage. Later on, Theseus captured it there and sacrificed it to Apollo. This myth constitutes a posterior combination of local myths from Crete, Argos, and Athens, which would have been incorporated into the labors of Heracles later on.
For his eighth labor, Eurystheus sent Heracles to bring him the horses of Diomedes. He was the son of Ares and a king of a war tribe, the Bistones, named after Lake Bistonis in Thrace, around which they lived. Diomedes kept four man-eating horses in his stables. He fed them every foreigner arriving in his land or every disobedient citizen. The horses were tied with heavy chains on their bronze manger and were watched over by numerous guards. Heracles, along with his companion Abderos, traveled to the land of the Bastones. After a short fight, they overpowered the guards. On being informed of the incident, Diomedes asked the Bastones to pursue the invaders. Heracles entrusted the horses to Abderos and rushed back to fight Diomedes and his pursuers, single-handedly. After the loss of a lot of men, the Bastones retreated. Heracles then returned to the boat, where he found that the horses had eaten Abderos. In revenge, he threw Diomedes into the bronze manger, feeding the master to his own horses. He then founded a city called Abdera, in honor of his slain companion. Eating made the horses calmer, so Heracles then took them back to Mycenae, where he gave them to Eurystheus. He set them free, and after wandering for a long time, they reached Mount Olympus. Zeus refused them, though, and so he sent wild wolves, lions, and bears to kill and eat them. For his ninth labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to bring him the famous belt of Hippolyta so that he could give it to his daughter. The tribe of the Amazons lived on the northern shores of the Black Sea. The queen of this warrior tribe, where women had the prominent role, was Hippolyta, a daughter of Ares. Her father had offered her a marvelous belt, a symbol of her high rank among the rest of the Amazons. Heracles, accompanied by select, brave young men, such as Telamon, Demoleon, and Autolycus, set out for the land of the Amazons. After various adventures, he finally arrived at their shoreline. Upon learning of their arrival, Hippolyta and the other Amazons went to welcome them. Heracles revealed the purpose of his journey to Hippolyta right away, and she was so impressed by him that she agreed to give him her belt. But Hera, disguised as an Amazon, convinced them that the foreigner had come to overthrow their queen. And so the Amazons put on their armor at once and attacked Heracles and his companions. During the battle, the most competent Amazons, as well as Hippolyta herself, were killed. Heracles took the dead queen's belt, and with his companions, they boarded the ships and sailed back home. After many more adventures along the way, he eventually arrived at Mycenae, where he gave Eurystheus the belt. According to an Athenian myth, Theseus had joined this expedition, and instead of killing Hippolyta, he abducted her and took her back to Athens to be his wife, which caused the Amazons, in revenge, to attack Athens in order to rescue her, known as the Amazonomachy. For his tenth labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to steal the famous red cattle of Geryon. He was a three-bodied monster with three human faces that lived on Erythea, an island to the far, far west. He was the son of Chryseor, the king of Iberia, and the grandson of Medusa and Poseidon. The shepherd was Eurytion, a son of Ares, along with his hound Orthus, which had two heads and a serpent's tail. Along the way west, Heracles passed through many countries and had adventures with various criminals. He crossed Europe, passed by Africa, and reached the Iberian Peninsula. He arrived at the strait which separated Europe from Africa, which was believed to be the end of the world. In commemoration of this journey, he erected two pillars, 
one on the European side and another on the African side, which later became known as the Pillars of Heracles, or the modern-day Strait of Gibraltar. Here, though, he faced the problem of reaching the island since it was in the middle of the ocean. So he asked for help from Helios, who granted him his horse-drawn golden chariot. Heracles was also supplied with the Horn of Amathea, which was filled with food for the journey. After he successfully transversed the rough ocean, he arrived at Erethea and immediately climbed up Mount Abbas. However, the two-headed hound, Orthus, took notice of him, but Heracles managed to kill it with his club. He dealt the same way with the herdsman Eurytion, who rushed to see what was happening. On hearing the commotion, Geryon sprang forth into action, carrying three shields, three spears, and wearing three helmets. He pursued after Heracles, who was driving his cattle away, but he too fell victim to the power of Heracles, this time to one of his venomous arrows, which had been dipped in the blood of the Larnian Hydra. Heracles then drove the cattle onto the golden chariot, and they arrived back at the strait. Afterwards, he returned the chariot to Helios, and then he began to herd the cattle back to Eurystheus. Heracles drove the cattle overland, northward, through the Iberian Peninsula, and into the Alps. However, here is where things get a little wonky. The Romans, the Sicilian Greeks, and the Scythians all interject themselves as part of Heracles' itinerary, despite central Italy, Sicily, and Scythia making no geographical sense at all in the context of traveling from Spain to Greece. Anyways, after coming out of the Alps, he drove the cattle southwards into the Italian peninsula, past a cave on the eastern bank of the Tiber River. This river is surrounded by the seven hills of Rome. There was a small settlement there, on the Aventine Hill, at the future site of Rome. At this point, though, it was not able to thrive, because living in that cave was Cacus, a fire-breathing ogre and a son of Hephaestus. He lived off of human flesh, and would nail the heads of victims to the doors of his cave. Heracles, unknowingly, had stopped to pasture the cattle nearby. As he slept, Cacus stole eight of his cattle, one for each of his hands, dragging them by their tails, and thus making them walk backwards, so that they left no trail. A repetition of the trick of the young Hermes when he stole the cattle of Apollo. When he awoke, Heracles searched for the cattle, but it was in vain. However, he eventually drove his remaining cattle past the cave, where Cacus had hidden the stolen animals, and as they passed, the stolen cows began mooing out to the others. Angered, Heracles stormed towards the cave. A terrified Cacus blocked the entrance with a vast immovable boulder, forcing Heracles to tear at the top of the mountain to reach his adversary. Cacus attacked Heracles by spewing fire and smoke, while Heracles responded with tree branches and rocks the size of millstones. Eventually losing patience, Heracles leapt into the cave, aiming for the area where the smoke was the heaviest. Heracles grabbed Cacus and strangled the monster so tightly that Cacus's eyes popped out and there was no blood left in his throat. According to the Romans, afterwards, King Evander was so thankful that he established a cult of Heracles there on the future site of Rome. He established an altar where the Forum Boarium, the cattle market, was later to be held. The Romans later erected temples for Heracles in this area, including the still extant Temple of Heracles Victor. In fact, central Italy would become the location of a large number of sanctuaries dedicated to Hercules. 
the popularity and growth of his cult can be seen as a reflection of the strong influence of Hellenic culture on the inhabitants of central Italy through their frequent interactions with Greek merchants in the cities of Magna Graecia. Leaving the future site of Rome, Heracles then continued southwards. When he reached southern Italy, a bull broke free from the herd and swam across the Strait of Messina into Sicily. Eryx, a local Sicilian king and the founder of a settlement on a mountain which took his name, was a son of Aphrodite. He found the bull and placed it into his own herd. Heracles eventually tracked it down, but Eryx wouldn't return it unless Heracles could best him in a wrestling bout. He obviously didn't know who he was dealing with, though, and Heracles beat him three times in a row bringing the competition to an emphatic end by killing the monarch. Reclaiming his errant bull, Heracles agreed to hand over Eryx's territory to the local indigenous people, as long as they agreed to give it back to his descendants, if they ever presented themselves in Sicily. Leaving the island, Heracles marched northwards through Italy once again. He eventually made his way to the shores of the Black Sea. According to Herodotus, Heracles was driving the cattle of Geryon through what would later become Scythia, when one morning he awoke and discovered that they had disappeared again. While searching for them, he found in a cave a double-formed creature. Above the buttocks, she was a woman, below them a snake. Though Herodotus does not name this creature as Echidna, the mother of monsters, the description sure fits. She had the cattle and promised to return them if Heracles would have sex with her. Heracles agreed, and she had a son by him, named Scythes. He became the founder and eponym of the Scythians. When Heracles finally reached the court of Eurystheus, the cattle were then sacrificed to Hera. For his eleventh labor, Eurystheus ordered Heracles to retrieve the golden apples of Hera from the Garden of the Hesperides. The golden apples were given to Hera on her wedding day from Gaia, and thus represented eternity and immortality. They were so beautiful that Hera had their seeds planted in her grove in the far west, beyond the ocean. The seeds sprouted and grew into trees. Near the orchard, there was the place where Atlas was holding the pillars, supporting the heavens on his shoulders. This also is where the Hesperides lived. They were the daughter of Nyx, but they occasionally, like others, picked apples from the orchard. This is why Hera placed Ladon an enormous serpent, as a safeguard. Heracles first had to find out where the Garden of the Hesperides was located, so he set off for his long journey, traveling first through the countries of the north. While passing through Thessaly, he fought a duel and killed Cygnus. He was a son of Ares, and so in retaliation, the god was about to hurl a spear at Heracles, until it was blocked by Athena. In Illyria, at the river Herodonis, He met some river nymphs and asked them how he could get to the Garden of the Hesperides. They sent him to their father, Nereus, the shape-shifting sea god, but warned Heracles that it would be difficult to get the information that he needed from him, so he would have to use violence. Heracles found Nereus sleeping and tried to catch him. The sea god escaped, though, and they started to wrestle, but he was unable to defeat him because Nereus kept changing his shape. Finally, though, the sea god was worn out, and so he gave in and told Heracles the location of the Garden of the Hesperides. Heracles then traveled along the African coastline. Somewhere in Lydia, he came across Antaeus, 
a half-giant son of Poseidon and Gaia. Antaeus challenged all passers-by to wrestling matches, and he remained invincible as long as he remained in contact with his mother Gaia. As Greek wrestling, like its modern counterpart, typically attempted to force opponents to the ground, Antaeus always won, and he would kill his opponents. He built a temple to his father Poseidon using their skulls. But Heracles, by using his intellect, realized that he could not beat Antaeus by throwing or pinning him. Instead, he held him aloft in the air and then crushed him to death in a bear hug. From there, Heracles passed by Egypt and Arabia, killing other bad guys along the way. And when he reached the Caucasus Mountains, he came across Prometheus, who was chained on the mountain as a punishment handed down by Zeus. And so he freed him and killed the eagle that had been eating at Prometheus's liver. When Heracles finally reached the region of Atlas, he found the Titan holding the pillars that held up the heavens on his shoulders. He explained his mission to Atlas, and so the Titan offered to go to the garden and bring him the apples himself, provided that Heracles would take his place and hold the pillars for a while. Having no other choice, he agreed. Atlas, in cooperation with Hesperides, overpowered the guard laid on and took the apples. However, he had deceived Heracles and told him that he would take the apples to Eurystheus himself. Heracles, though, thought quickly and pretended to agree with Atlas, only asking of him to hold the pillars for a minute so that he could pat his shoulders and get a bit more comfortable. Atlas agreed, and Heracles took the apples, bid the duped Titan farewell, and returned to Mycenae. Eurystheus offered Heracles the apples, but he gave them to his patroness Athena. The myth is representative of Heracles' ability to grasp the fruit, meaning immortality, while we humans cannot. Mixed in with the major task for heroes is often a descent into the underworld. The Greek conception of the underworld was the dark, cold kingdom of Hades and Persephone. Whoever reached this place, on Charon's boat, lost every hope of return to the world of the living. To prevent the dead from escaping, Hades had the gate guarded by a fearsome monster, the three-headed dog Cerberus. His bark would scare the souls in the underworld, because they hated loud noises, and thus it kept them from escaping. For his twelfth and last labor, Heracles was ordered to fetch Cerberus from the underworld and to bring him back to Eurystheus. In order to learn how to enter into the underworld safely, Heracles first had to be purified, and then initiated, into the Eleusinian Mysteries. Hermes and Athena accompanied him to the gate of the underworld. He descended through a cave under one of Apollo's temples. Through the cave, he reached the river Styx, which separated the kingdom of the dead from the realm of the living. He was taken across the river by Charon on his boat. In the underworld, most of the shades fled from Heracles out of fear, except for Meleager, the brother of Heracles' future wife, Dianera. While in the underworld, Heracles also came across the imprisoned Theseus and Perithous, two heroes who had come to kidnap Persephone, the wife of Hades and the queen of the underworld. The goddess permitted Heracles to free Theseus, who was stuck in the chair of forgetfulness, but not Perithous, since it was his foolish idea to abduct Persephone and make her his wife. Heracles also asked permission from Hades to bring Cerberus to Eurystheus. Hades granted him permission on the condition that Heracles captured Cerberus with his own hands. So Heracles then challenged Cerberus, and with his bare hands he wrestled the dog into submission. 
When he had tied the dog up and made his way to the world of the living, Hades broke his promise and tried to prevent Heracles from leaving. So Heracles shot Hades with an arrow, which allowed him to escape. Heracles then drugged the guard dog of the underworld up to the light of day, thus symbolically conquering death. At the sight of Cerberus, Eurystheus jumped into a large pot, representing man's fear of death, which Heracles just conquered. The dog was then returned to its master. With his newfound freedom, the adventures of Heracles only continued. There are so many of these to recount them all, and their chronology, as we mentioned before, is a jumbled mess. But we will touch upon the main ones. Heracles had promised Meleager in the underworld that when he returned to the world above, he would marry his sister Dianera of Caledon. When Heracles returned, he did head for Caledon, where he found Dianera being wooed by the river god, Achilles. This river god, by nature of his watery composition, could turn himself into any creature that he wished. When Dianera expressed the desire to marry Heracles instead of Achilles, the two suitors found themselves locked into mortal combat. In the end, Heracles defeated Achilles, while the latter was in the form of a bull. Heracles ripped off one of his horns, at which point Achilles conceded defeat and gave to Heracles the hand of Dianera. The two of them had a son, Helus, who later led the Heraclidae invasion of the Peloponnese. Later, Heracles won another girl in an archery contest. Her name was Iole. Because her father had refused Heracles, even though he had won the contest, Heracles had to take her by force. In a fit of madness, he killed her brother, Iphitus. Thus Heracles had to atone for his sins once again, as in the previous case with Megara. The oracle at Delphi, however, was so appalled by his repeat crime that she refused to give an answer. Heracles became enraged, stole the tripod of the Pythian priestess, and threatened to set up his own oracle. Apollo then arrived, and the two came to blows. Fortunately, Zeus's thunderbolt was able to separate them and to dissuade Heracles of any further rage. The oracle then told Heracles that to purify himself, he must become a slave of Amphale, the queen of Lydia, for three years. She liked to dress Heracles up in feminine clothes and to take on his lion skin and club for herself. The two of them made an interesting transvestite pair, and Heracles even learned weaving from her. Amphale eventually freed Heracles and married him. They had a son. According to Herodotus, a very long line of Lydian kings descended from this union. Before leaving Asia Minor, Heracles helped Laomedon, the king of Troy, whose country was plagued by famine and a fearsome dragon. According to an oracle, so as to save his country, Laomedon had to bind his daughter, Hesione, on a rock as a sacrifice to the dragon. But Heracles slew the creature and freed Hesione, after Laomedon had promised to give him the divine horses that Troy had received from Zeus, as compensation for Zeus's kidnapping of Ganymede to make him his cupbearer on Mount Olympus. Laomedon, though, broke his promise, so Heracles returned to the Argolid, recruited six ships filled with warriors, and sailed against Troy. After besieging the city, he destroyed it completely and slew all of Laomedon's sons, except for Priam, who saved his own life by giving Heracles a golden veil that Hesione had made. Telamon took Hesione as a war prize. They married and had a son named Teucer. This expedition took place one generation before the Trojan War. When Heracles returned to the Argolid, 
he launched more war expeditions against various enemies, including Pylos and Sparta. In doing so, he came into conflict with many characters, such as Nestor and Tyndarius, who were in the twilight of their life when the later Trojan War would begin. He also joined Jason the Argonauts in search for the Golden Fleece, though he did not travel with them the whole way to Colchis. He honored for the first time in Elis, the Olympic Games, the first athletic contest there in honor of his father Zeus. Finally, for all heroes, there is an apotheosis, or deification, by rising up into the heavens to be a god. Heracles has a miserable ending, though. His wife, Dianera, became so jealous that he was accompanied by Iole and was so afraid that he might love her more than herself. It so happened that one day, while crossing a particularly dangerous river, a strange incident took place that eventually led to Heracles' ultimate downfall. When Heracles came with Dianera to the river, he was not sure how he would get her across safely. A centaur named Nessus arrived and promised that she could ride on his back safely to the other side. However, while on the other side, Nessus decided to take advantage of Dianera, since Heracles was still across the river. Heracles, upon seeing what was happening, shot one of his poisonous arrows into Nessus and killed him. Before Nessus died, though, he told Dianera to take some of his blood because it had special qualities to it. For if Heracles ever began to lose affection for her, the blood could be used to restore his love. It was a trick, though, since the blood had been tainted by the highly venomous arrows with the Hydra's poison on them. So when Dianera finally decided to act, she rubbed some of this supposed love potion on a shirt for Heracles to wear. When he put it on, it burned his skin like napalm, and nothing he did was able to counteract the fiery acid. When the agony reached such an intense level that he could not bear it any longer, he built his own funeral pyre on Mount Oeta and climbed atop it. He begged passers-by to light it up, wanting to end his misery, but nobody was willing. Finally, some random character passed by, who became important later in myth, a young Philoctetes of Thessaly. In exchange for him lighting it up, Heracles gave to him his bow and arrow, which never misses its mark. Philoctetes used this bow and arrow to kill Paris in the later Trojan War. Anyways, Heracles' body was burnt up, but the fire only purged him of his mortal parts, so that with a clap of thunder and the descent of a cloud, Heracles' body rose up onto Mount Olympus, at which point he became an Olympian god and was reconciled with Hera once and for all. Heracles' deification was a classical period invention, though, which creates an awkwardness with Homer's account in which Odysseus encounters Heracles in the underworld. The heroic persona of Heracles is important. Extraordinary strength, courage, ingenuity, and sexual prowess were among the characteristics commonly attributed to him. Heracles used his wits on several occasions when his strength did not suffice, though, such as when laboring for the king Agius of Elis, wrestling the giant Antaeus, or tricking Atlas into taking the sky back onto his shoulders. But he is a bundle of contradictions, because he is both man and god, and thus has qualities of both. He has the extremes of human fragility and failure. He was an extremely passionate and emotional individual, capable of doing both great deeds for his friends, such as wrestling with Thanatos on behalf of Admetus, or restoring his friend Tyndarius to the throne of Sparta after he was overthrown but also being a terrible enemy who would wreak horrible vengeance on those who crossed him, as Agius, Nellius, and Laomedon all found out. 
he is apt to have fits of rage, and thus he kills his own family. He wears the lion skin to represent the fact that humans are more like beasts than gods. When he wrestles the Arimanthian boar in the snow, which was ravaging the countryside, he is naked and vulnerable as a man. He is a notorious drunkard, glutton and womanizer, driven by his passions, not intellect. At some point, he is humiliated and forced to dress as a woman, showing his weakness, and he is ruled and controlled by his cousin Eurystheus. Yet he also has the extremes of divine achievement. He is a reconciler, liberator, civilizer, and subduer, so that civilization can thrive. By conquering dangerous archaic forces, he makes the world safe for mankind and becomes its benefactor. He kills the hydra and drains its swamps to make the area livable. He also diverts a river to flow through the stables, which stretches for miles with horse manure, and cleans them, acting as an irrigation system. He destroys monsters, goes through rites of passages by killing boars and deer, and he kills bandits, alters the landscape, completes life's passages, and conquers death, all because we as humans cannot. Heracles mediates the contradictory in one person and intervenes to solve an internal dispute between gods and man reconciling them in one body. He killed his wife and thus commits the most heinous of sins, also that he can expiate from mankind through his own labors. Thus he practices vicarious atonement. Our world is safer, happier, more resolved, and less tense because Heracles passed through it. Heracles was the greatest of the Greek heroes, but unlike the others, no tomb was ever identified as being his, as he was not exclusively connected with a single polis or village. That's because Heracles was both a hero and a divine god who held panhellenic status. Pindar calls him a herostheos, which means a divine hero. At festivals in his honor, sacrifices were made to him, first as a hero, with a chthonic libation, and then as a god, upon an altar. His cults, as well as those of dependent Heraclean heroes, such as Iolaus, Iphicles, and the sons of Heracles, are often found in initiatory and pederastic contexts. His cults were thus often closely connected with youth. Furthermore, there was a mythological tradition that after Heracles died, he was transported to Mount Olympus, where he married Hebe, the personification of youth. Together with Hermes, Heracles was the patron and protector of the Gymnasia and Palestrae. In this role, he was a patron of the young men engaged in preparing their bodies for the challenges of campaign and battle. The foremost requirements for a Heracleon, or a sanctuary of Heracles, which often did double duty as a gymnasium, were abundant open space, water, and accessibility, and many of his sanctuaries lay just outside the city walls. These same features meant that they were often used as military encampments. Despite the scarcity of Athenian myths about Heracles, his Attic cults were deeply rooted and numerous, arguably benefiting from the patronage of the Pisistratids. The Athenian victory at Marathon only increased his popularity for one of his oldest Attic shrines that was located there. The Athenians had organized their military camp in his sanctuary, as we discussed in episode 36, and after the battle, he was credited with aiding them. According to Herodotus, when the Athenians rushed back from Marathon to engage the Persian fleet heading to Athens, they camped out at Sinosargis, the location of another important sanctuary of Heracles. The Athenians celebrated the festival of the Heraclea, commemorating the death of Heracles on the second day of the month of Metageitnion, 
which fell in either late July or early August, at the Sinosargis Gymnasium outside the walls of Athens, in the aforementioned sanctuary dedicated to Heracles. His priests were drawn from the list of boys who were not full Athenian citizens, called Nothoi. Many famous Nothoi exercised there, such as Demosthenes, but it was probably not exclusively set aside for them. Furthermore, it was a hothouse of intellectual activity, attracting men like Themistocles and Socrates. Pausanias says that the sanctuary also included altars for Hebe, Alcmene, and Iolaus. Within the city walls, Heracles' most important shrine was south of the Agora. Here, he had the title of Alexicakos, or the warderer off of evils, and the Athenians relied on him to repel plagues. As a protector of youths, he received libations from Athenian boys preparing to embark on military training. The ceremony, known as the Oinisteria, may have taken place there or in the type of neighborhood shrine that is illustrated on attic vase paintings and in votive reliefs, in which four columns stand on a base supporting an unroofed rectangle of beams. Such shrines were probably used often for private sacrifices to Heracles. There is also abundant 5th and 4th centuries BC evidence by means of inscriptions of small cult associations called theasoi, which met regularly to share a banquet in Heracles' honor, appointing their own priests and making their own rules. Heracles' cult in Boeotia focused almost exclusively on a young Heracles, and he often assumes the cultic role of military champion and guardian of the city gates. At Thebes, 5th century BC coins show the youthful Heracles strangling the snakes sent by Hera, foreshadowing his role as a protector against evils. Our earliest written source for his cult at Thebes is Pindar. He describes a feast in which the festivities lasted a number of days, and consisted of various athletic and musical contests, as well as burnt sacrifices. Pausanias gives a more detailed account of his cult complex outside the gate. He says that this included the tombs of dead Theban warriors, the so-called House of Amphitryon, and a temple to Heracles. Another festival was celebrated in the gymnasium of Iolaus, the nephew and Eromenos of Heracles, and were known as the Iolaia. The winners were awarded brass tripods. One of Heracles' oldest known cults belongs to Thassos, an island colonized by Greeks from Paros in the 7th century BC. A Thassian hymn to Heracles, styling him Kalanikos, or of the beautiful victory, was attributed to Archilochus. Heracles and Dionysus were designated guardians of the city in an archaic inscription on the southern city wall, where a release sculpture depicted Heracles kneeling and taking aim with his bow. According to Herodotus, it was the Phoenicians who introduced the cult of Heracles. While no evidence from the sanctuary itself supports this idea, the Phoenicians certainly occupied Thassus before the Greeks. Their god Melkart was widely identified with Heracles in the historical period, and the Phoenician background may account for the unusual civic prominence of Heracles on Thassos. Entering the city from the south, visitors soon encountered the Heracleion. As a civic deity, Heracles was worshipped in the Thassian Agora. A classical inscription from the marble-walled Passage of the Theoroi a special area in the northeast part of the Agora, where ritual laws were displayed, announces that it is not permitted to sacrifice a goat or a pig to Heracles Thasios, nor for a woman to partake of the meat, nor for a ninth, as a tithe, to be given, nor for Gera, 
or perks to be cut from the meat, nor for contests to be held, meaning for prizes of honor to be cut from the meat. These restrictions seem to focus on saving the animal's meat all for one purpose, whether for a Holocaust sacrifice in Chthonian style, or more likely some strictly equal division of meat among a group of privileged men. Other inscriptions mention Thassian festivals of Heracles, including one occasion when athletic competitions were held and the sons of dead soldiers were presented with arms as state compensation for their loss. On the whole, the evidence from Thassos gives us a picture of a warlike Heracles, concerned above all with male bonding and communion. Because of his more than likely Bronze Age roots in the Peloponnese, the Iron Age Dorian peoples who settled there appropriated Heracles as an ancestor in order to legitimize their claims to the land. Heracles himself was denied the kingship of Argos, but according to myth, his descendants returned and conquered the land by right. Stories of his exploits overseas similarly served to justify Dorian colonization, first in the Aegean islands of Rhodes and Kaz, and later in the west. Thus, many elite families and tribes, including the kings of Sparta, trace their ancestry to him. There is evidence of an archaic cult at Tyrants, but old Dorian cults of Heracles are not as numerous as we would expect, if he were in fact a Dorian hero originally, and are all but absent in Crete. In fact, Heracles figures far more often as a cult founder than a cult recipient. A surprising number of Spartan monuments and cults are tied to a minor myth, that being Heracles' feud with the renegade king Hippocoon, who usurped the throne from Tyndarius. Heracles slaughtered Hippocoon and all of his sons, placing Tyndarius in his debt and filling the landscape with tombs, trophies, and sanctuaries thanking the gods for his victory. In the service of Heracles' ideology, these myths and cults placed him on an equal footing with the native heroes and sons of Tyndarius, the Dioscori. The Spartan Heracles was less the club-wielding, skin-clad figure familiar from Attic vases, and more an idolized warrior. Spartan youths on the cusp of manhood offered sacrifices to Heracles at the Dromos, the course for foot races, and fought ritual battles at the so-called Plains, a sacred grove of plane trees where Heracles and Lycurgus were the resident powers. As a tutelary deity of the kings, Heracles often played a role in battle. The Spartan general's preference for sanctuaries of Heracles as encampments surely owed something to piety, as well as experience. For the Greeks of the western colonies, Heracles was a trailblazer who traveled to the ends of the earth, a founder of cities and cults, and an apostle of Hellenism. His journeys through the western Mediterranean with the cattle of Geryon, celebrated by the Sicilian poet Stesichorus, helped to justify Greek possession of colonized lands. His prominence in the sphere of Phoenician influence was in part a function of his identification with the god Melkart, but this cannot explain the popularity of him in Italy. Diodorus Siculus, our main informant for the beliefs of the Sicilian Greeks, says that Heracles made a circuit of the island, battling indigenous peoples and leaving imperishable memorials of his presence in the landscape itself. By abolishing savage customs and clearing away brigands and monsters, Heracles set something of a precedent for the Greek colonists' sometimes aggressive dealings with the indigenous peoples. The myth about his wrestling bout with Eryx is an indication of his centrality to the Greek settlers' claims to the ownership of the Sicilian landscape that they inhabit it. It is surely no coincidence that many of the Western colonizers claim descent from Heracles. 
The long reach of Heracles certainly wasn't restricted to the indigenous peoples of Sicily, though, as the Carthaginians also gained first-hand experience of his legacy. His epic wrestling bout with Antaeus possibly provided a mythological canvas for Greek colonization in North Africa, as the closest Greek settlement to Carthaginian territory was the city of Euhesperides, founded in the middle of the 6th century BC, and named after its supposed proximity to the Garden of the Hesperides. Over time, the lore of Heracles was gradually transformed from a figure strongly associated with terrestrial wandering and temperamental violence to an exuberant symbol of the success of the Greek colonial project in the West. The message that these legendary associations proclaimed was as clear as it was powerful. These colonists were not foreign invaders. Sicily was Greek land, bequeathed them by none other than the son of Zeus. What all of this shows us is that, as Western colonization became inextricably bound with the Heraclean story in the Greek cultural imagination, myth came to legitimize colonization, and colonization created new myths. Following the monumental events of founder heroes like Cadmus, Perseus, Theseus, and Heracles comes a period that is regarded as the dawn of the Age of Heroes. To the heroic age are also ascribed three great events the Argonautic Expedition, the Theban Cycle, and the Trojan War. But those will be topics that will need to be covered on future episodes. On the next episode, we will continue our cultural tour of classical Greece by looking at one of the main social gatherings where music and poetry were fused together, that being the symposium, or drinking parties, as well as the food and wine that was consumed by the ancient Greeks. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, episode 48, Food, Wine, and the Symposium.